Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. I'm one of the pastors at Covenant Hope Church here in Dubai. And this summer, we are working our way through book four of the Psalms. And so we're in the 90s right now. Today, we'll be in Psalm 94. Jesus told his disciples a story, a parable to teach them about the Lord. He said that there was a judge who had no fear of God and didn't respect people. And there was a widow who kept coming to the judge and bothering him, saying that someone had taken advantage of her. She said to him, give me justice against my adversary. Now a widow in that day and time especially would have been someone who was vulnerable. The judge wouldn't listen to her. Over and over again, she came to the judge, but he wouldn't listen. But because the woman continued to bother this unjust judge, he eventually decided to give her justice. And Jesus told them at the end of the parable, quote, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The God of the Bible gives justice to his people. It's a promise. Christians can cry out to the Lord and be assured that he will answer them with vengeance. We see that in the parable that Jesus spoke. Perhaps we don't even have to use that word justice because the word that's like it in the psalm that we're looking at this afternoon is vengeance. Vengeance. God is a judge who gets vengeance for his people and repays the wicked. That's what Jesus' parable taught. And that's at least part of the message of Psalm 94. But in what sense, in what sense can we as Christians understand this Psalm 94 and this request for vengeance from the Lord? Well, let's dive right in and let the Lord teach us from his word. Uh, if you'll grab your Bibles, and turn to Psalm 94. You'll need to be looking at the verses as we walk through this because my sermon's going to very closely follow the verses in the scriptures. Now, before I read this out loud, just one note. I want to encourage you as you learn to read scripture out loud, particularly in the corporate gathering, to not read scripture in a dead and wooden kind of way, but to read scripture with the right tone and the right inflection. Ref read it in a way that reflects what's being written and communicates meaning. When you read scripture out loud, you don't want to read it like you're reading out loud a recipe or reading out loud an economics textbook or anything like this. This is God's word, and we need to read it with meaning and feeling. So listen to Psalm 94. Follow along with me. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, 
knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. For the Lord our God will wipe them out. Let's go to the Lord and ask Him to give us insight into His Word. Heavenly Father, if we couldn't cry out to you about injustice, who could we cry out to? The world is filled with wickedness and it's wounded so many of us. But you listen and you know and you see and you hear everything, even the thoughts of man. Lord, open our eyes this afternoon to understand your word. What do you want to teach us about yourself? What do you want us to learn about ourselves? Lord, teach us about the world and how we should live in it as well. And Lord, we ask that you would enable us to know you and trust your Son, the Lord Jesus, even more as you teach us by your Holy Spirit today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think that the psalmist's overall message in this psalm is trust the Lord who protects his people and pays back the wicked. Trust the Lord who protects his people and pays back the wicked. Now, there are really three groups of verses in this psalm. Excuse me, six groups of verses, six stanzas, but I'm going to group them together into three points. And the first point is going to cover the first three stanzas that we see in verses 1 through 11. And we can call that, The Wicked Are Charged. The wicked are charged. It's as if they're in a courtroom and the psalmist is bringing a charge. And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is a cry to God to pour out his vengeance on the wicked. Now, these verses are full of emotion. You could even say anger. For the psalmist, God is a God of vengeance. He's a judge who can repay the wicked for what they've done. I wonder, do you hear the widow's plea in these words, that widow from Jesus' parable? Let me teach you a big word that applies to this kind of a psalm. Now, overall, the psalm would be called a psalm of lament. It's lamenting the fact that the wicked are carrying out their sin without being stopped. But there's also some verses in it that we would call imprecatory imprecatory, and that means calling down curses, calling down curses or cursing others. It's very difficult for us as Christians to interpret the imprecatory curses, the verses in the scripture, 
But much of the language in this psalm is actually found in Deuteronomy 32. These are not just words and ideas that the psalmist came up with on his own. He's actually calling on some of God's words spoken through the prophet Moses in a prophetic song that he gave to Israel before he died. In Deuteronomy 32, in verse 35, God says through Moses, Vengeance is mine and recompense. In other words, I will pay back for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And then on later in that chapter in verse 43, he says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Do you hear the psalmist recalling these promises from Deuteronomy 32? And now the psalmist is calling them in. Calling, he's calling God to account, so to speak. And he's saying, essentially, God, will you do something based on what you said you'd do? Now, one of the things that we can learn from this urgent cry of the psalmist is that we can cry out to God as well with emotion. God can handle your emotions. Are you able to speak to God with emotion? Or are your prayers more like a string of memorized sayings, things you heard growing up that you thought might please God if you say them over again? Our relationship with God is a real relationship. If your emotions show in your conversations with your spouse or with your friends, they should be a part of your conversations with God as well. Speak to God about what you're experiencing. Speak to Him about what you're feeling, about what you're dealing with. Be honest with Him. If the psalmist can speak to God with raw emotion, so can you. In fact, I think it might be an indicator of a healthy relationship with the Lord if you know how to cry out to Him in lament or frustration or even in exuberant joy. Any one of those says that our relationship with God is real rather than having emotionless prayers spoken as if we were on the telephone line with some automated system. Oh, far from the truth. God is real, He's alive, He listens, and He can handle our emotions. Another thing we have to consider is whether it's legitimate to consider worshiping a God who is an avenger. Is it true that God is a God of vengeance? Isn't vengeance wrong? If we worship a God who avenges, will we then become revengeful people? Much of the world would make that allegation about the God of the Bible. That's their objection to Christianity. But I would answer no. No, and we have to be very careful with definitions here. The Bible considers revenge wrong. That's personal retribution for something that's been done to you. But vengeance carried out by the Lord is different. Vengeance is something like justice, and in the Bible, it's left up to God and not man. Vengeance carried out by a good and perfect God, holy and loving, 
executing justice after a case has been heard in heaven's courtroom is good and right. But vengeance should never be carried out by us. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And of course, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 32 there. God is creator of everything and everyone, and he's also, therefore, the judge over all. He has the right to pass final judgment on what's right and wrong because he defines what's right and wrong. It's right for him to be the avenger of wrongdoing. And when God avenges wrongdoing, God does it perfectly. Those of you who might be listening in who are not Christians, maybe, maybe you don't even believe there is a God. I want to ask you a question. Are you comfortable with the idea that many people in the world who are doing extremely wicked things, oppressing the vulnerable all over the world, getting rich off of them, committing violence against them, will go to their grave, and if there is no God and there is no afterlife, no justice will ever be done. Are you satisfied with that? Are you comfortable with living in a world like that? Do you think that's really true? It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that every wrong that's been done will be righted. It will be called to account. Those of you who are believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, does this characteristic describe God as you understand Him? If not, I want to urge you to conform your ideas about God to what the Scriptures say about God. You know, if you find yourself ever saying, you know, I just couldn't worship a God like that, and you're speaking about something that's written about Him in Scripture, oh, brothers and sisters, you're on dangerous ground. Could it be that there's something wrong in you that's not allowing you to accept what the Scriptures truthfully tell you about God? It's this characteristic of God's holiness, His vengeance against wrongdoing, this very characteristic of God that makes it appropriate for us to cry out to Him for justice. And the next thing that we see in these verses, after verses 1 through 3, is that the psalmist presents evidence against the wicked. So he's crying out against the wicked. Now he's presenting evidence against them. And we see in verse 4 he says they're prideful. In verses 5 and 6 he says they're cruel. And verses 7 through 11, he says they're ignorant, ignorant of God. So in verse 4, we see that they're boasting about their injustices. The wicked are not ashamed. They're reveling in the wicked acts that they've committed. And then the psalmist indicts their cruelty. They crush your people, the psalmist says to God. They afflict your heritage, Lord. Heritage is another word for the Lord's chosen people. And not only that, we see in verse 6, they take special advantage of the weak and defenseless. They kill the widow. And of course, widows would have been people who were very vulnerable in that society. They wouldn't have a husband 
to protect or provide for them. In addition to that, they kill the sojourner, someone who's traveling through Israel and wouldn't know the system there and how to get justice if they had been treated badly. Perhaps they, people of the land were plotting to murder and steal from sojourners. And in addition to that, perhaps worst of all, they murder the fatherless. Orphans are being taken advantage of because children are especially vulnerable. These three kinds of people that the wicked are taken advantage of would have been some of the most vulnerable in society, and there were many laws given to Israel about protecting the vulnerable. But the wicked, they see them as easy targets. They don't want to protect them. They want to exploit them. They want to commit violence against them, and they're doing it with impunity. No one is stopping them. I'm not sure if any of you could fit neatly into either of those three categories of vulnerable people, but many of you are vulnerable nonetheless. And I want you to know that God pays particular attention to how the vulnerable in society are treated. The scripture is clear about that throughout, especially in the Old Testament. Oftentimes in our world, the vulnerable are simply women and children. And the violence and abuse that they endure takes place in their families. In their families. It's not out on the streets that they become victims, but in what should be the safety of their own homes. It's often, though not exclusively, fathers, husbands, sometimes mothers, themselves abused sometimes, who strike one another in anger. There's actual physical violence in the home, or they tear their children down with hurtful and critical words. Oftentimes, family members manipulate one another with threats about money or even violence. Some of you have experienced this in your life. Some of you are experiencing it. Let me be clear. There is no room for this in the church of Jesus Christ. If you're a member of the church, if you're born again and trusting in Christ for your salvation, and you're committing these kinds of acts of oppression against family members or anyone else for that matter, you must repent. You must stop it immediately. You are doing the very things that the wicked in this passage are described as doing. Parents are not to abuse their children. They're to love them and train them up in the love of the Lord. Fathers have no right to abuse their wives. No matter how much pressure they're experiencing in life, no matter how much they were abused, perhaps as children, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, who laid his life down for her. Brothers and sisters in a family are to love one another and not to persecute one another, not physically, not emotionally, not with their words. Now, maybe that's all you knew growing up. Maybe that's what was modeled for you, but that doesn't make it right. If you're experiencing abuse like this, maybe you've experienced it in the past and you're thinking back on it even now, 
please reach out to one of the elders in the church. We want to support you. We want to pray with you and for you. We want to help. Most of all, we want to listen. Lastly, in these verses, we see the ignorance of the wicked and how they view God. And their ignorance is willful and blasphemous. Verse 7, And they say, The Lord does not see, and the God of Jacob does not perceive. The wicked think that God doesn't know what they're doing. You know what they're denying? They're denying God's omniscience, His characteristic where He knows everything. They think that God made the world and that He's sitting back in some corner of the universe on some God-sized rocking chair asleep. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing is hidden from the God of the universe. In verses 8 through 11, it's as if the psalmist then pleads with the wicked and begs them to understand that the Lord knows everything about everyone, including their thoughts. God made everyone's ears. Don't you think he can hear, says the psalmist? Or God made everyone's eyes. Don't you think he can see what you're doing? Well, we've spent a lot of time on the wicked in verses 1 through 11, but before we move on, it's important for me to ask you two more questions. Do you see how the psalmist prays for the injustice that he sees around him and not just the wrongs that are being done to himself? Do you pray for the victims of wickedness around you, even if it doesn't affect you directly, especially brothers and sisters in the church? It's one of the reasons why we pray for these kinds of things when we gather as a church. In the pastoral prayer, when we're normally gathering weekly for corporate worship, even on your own, those pastoral prayers should be a model for your own prayers. Pray for those who are experiencing injustice. Pray that the Lord would rescue them and care for them. And the last question I have for you is perhaps the biggest. Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? The psalmist here not only loves and trusts the Lord, but hates sin. Are you moved when you hear of others being taken advantage of? Are you upset when you find out that colleagues are persecuting a fellow worker, even if it's not you? God hates sin. And the more that we grow in godliness, the more that we will hate sin. The the psalmist has pressed charges against the wicked in God's courtroom, but the psalmist also hasn't forgotten how the blessed are protected. The blessed are protected. We see how God blesses His people in the midst of affliction in verses 12 through 19. In verse 12, we see that the Lord disciplines the one He loves. He teaches His people through His law. This, of course, is much the same message as we read maybe in Hebrews chapter 12, for example, which also itself quotes from Proverbs 3. We read in Proverbs 3, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father the Son in whom He delights. Furthermore, the Lord gives His people rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked, it says in verse 13. 
One translation puts that first line in verse 13 like this. It says, his mind is at peace, though times are bad. God gives peace to his people in the midst of persecution from the wicked so that they can endure, endure until the Lord brings vengeance against the wicked. Verses 14 and 15 are reminders that the Lord doesn't forsake his people. God absolutely will not abandon those he calls his heritage. We saw these twin words of people and heritage back in verses, verse 5, where the psalmist was calling out the wickedness and oppression that, that, that the sinners and the wicked were committing against God's people and heritage. But here we're reminded God doesn't forsake them, his people or his heritage. And then in verses 16 through 19, they're perhaps some of the most encouraging verses that any child of God could read. The psalmist is giving a personal testimony of how God has protected him when the wicked threatened his life. The Lord was his help when he faced death or what he calls the land of silence. He imagines himself perhaps in battle when he thought his foot had slipped in verse 18. But the Lord's steadfast love held me up, he says. Makes me think of a video that I saw this past week of an apartment building somewhere on fire, somewhere around the world. There was a family trapped in one of the third floor apartments. So a group of people gathered around at the base of the apartment building and they called for the family to drop their children out of the window. And they did. And all those people at the base of the building caught the children and saved their lives. That's what's kind of being described here. God's steadfast love held up and protected the psalmist. And who can't find blessing and protection from the Lord in verse 19? When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Let me pick out just three blessings for God's people and speak just a little bit more about them here in verses 12 through 19. First, God disciplines you because he loves you. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, these promises are for you. The Lord can even use the trials and suffering which the wicked are causing for you for good in your life. The New Testament is littered with encouragements to endure suffering from wicked people as discipline that the Lord will use in our lives as painful as it may be. For example, James 1, 2-3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or 1 Peter 4, verse 14, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Lord uses our sufferings to do good work in us. Or we can see in these verses that the Lord will not forget you. He won't forsake. He will not abandon. No matter how bad things get, God is not absent. Oh, brothers and sisters, some of you when bad things, difficult things, trials begin to beset you, you begin to think that God has pulled back from you in some way. Oh, it's not true. It's so not true. 
And this is one reason why we need the body of Christ. We need the local church. That's one reason why we don't give up the habit of meeting together, even though in these days, these pandemic days, we're being forced to not meet physically. Even now we're meeting online on Zoom every week, multiple times. Oh, I encourage you to show up for some of those Zoom meetings, whether on Fridays for the Zoom small groups to do an inductive Bible study or Monday nights at eight o'clock to see one another's faces, even if it's just on a screen, is such an encouragement. An encouragement that because we've not abandoned one another, oh, all the more our Lord God has not abandoned us. And the last thing, the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel was, and behold, I am with you always. It's a promise of the Lord. He never leaves his people. A third thing that we see in these verses is that the Lord consoles us. He encourages us. He comforts us. Like a mother consoles a crying newborn, or maybe a friend would stand by and put a hand on your back in the midst of you experiencing grief, so the Lord consoles us. When we have so many cares and worries and great anxiety in life, God cheers us, not in a superficial way. He doesn't tell us a, a stupid joke. But in a deep and soul-satisfying way, the Lord comes to us. If there was ever a time that we needed His consoling, whenever His church needed comforting, and to have our souls cheered, oh, brothers and sisters, it's now, isn't it? So many of you are feeling anxious and fearful, not knowing what life holds as economies crash, our lives are upended by world events, some of our loved ones are in harm's way. But we have the promise of a God who listens and knows us. And Paul taught us that, of course, as well in so many of his epistles, not least of which he did in the Philippian letter. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How do we get this consolation from the Lord? Well, we get it from reading God's Word, believing it, taking it to heart. We get it from remembering God's faithfulness to us in the past. We get it from receiving encouraging words from other church members or other believers who tell us true things about God and about ourselves. And we also get it when we receive truths that we hear in Scripture-saturated sermons. Brothers and sisters, the Lord wants to console you. Receive it. Receive it from Him. We've heard how the wicked are charged in verses 1 through 11, and then how the blessed are protected in verses 12 through 19. And finally, we listen to the psalmist telling us the Lord's payback is certain. The Lord's payback is certain in verses 20 and 20 through 23. Now you may have noticed that most of these stanzas in this psalm begin with a question. And it's true of this sixth 
and last stanza as well. Let me read just those first two verses again. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. And of course, here the psalmist zeroes in on the wicked who specifically are rulers. They have power. Some of the wicked that were mentioned in verses 1 through 11, they might not have been rulers. Maybe they were just modeling their lives after wicked rulers. But here the psalmist targets the rulers with his words. These rulers have power, and they use their power to do what? To frame injustice by statute. What does that mean? It means that they're enacting unjust laws that take advantage of people. They're enacting unjust laws that take advantage of people. They're not fair. The very people that these wicked rulers are taking advantage of are the ones that God had put these men, presumably, these kings, in a position of power over to love and care for His people, to lead and guide them in living for the Lord's glory. They're using instead their power to do the opposite. They're exploiting their own people through their oppressive rule over them. And this happened time after time after time in Israel's history. The history of Israel's kings was that they had very few good kings and so many wicked kings. So many who led the people into idolatry, into violence, into sexual immorality. For most of their history, Israel would have been a dangerous place to live. Violence and injustice was rampant, and especially sin against the vulnerable of society. You might remember that I've taught in the past that because all of Scripture is pointing toward and ultimately about Jesus, and Jesus says this himself in Luke 24 and in John chapter 5, it's really a theme throughout Jesus' teaching. You might remember that when we read the Psalms, we're reading something that's primarily about Jesus or perhaps in the voice of Jesus and secondarily about us. And that's true here. And we see it especially in these verses here in 20 through 23. Jesus is the Son of God, sent from God the Father to live as a man among us on the earth. And because He was fully man and fully God, He had no sin. He never disobeyed His Father. He, more than anyone else, is described by the terms that are there in verse 21, righteous and innocent. And yet the rulers, both the Jewish and the Gentile rulers of his day, wicked men banded together to condemn him to death. And the only thing that they could accuse him of was that he claimed to be the son of God the Father, which was true, something that the Jews considered blasphemy. And they accused him of claiming to be the rightful king of Israel, something which was true and something which the Romans could execute him for. And they succeeded. They conspired to crucify the Son of God, the only righteous and innocent one. But God wasn't absent. God didn't abandon His Son to the grave. 
Though Jesus Christ was crucified, it was the plan of the Father and the Son together that the sinful murder of Jesus would become the act that would lead to the salvation of anyone who would believe in Him. What they meant for harm, God and the Son meant for good. How? How could that be? You see, on the cross, on the cross, Jesus was taking on Himself the punishment and the payback that we sinners deserve. He took it so that we could be set free. You see, we may not be the unrighteous or the wicked that are described in these first 11 verses. In fact, many times in our lives, we've, we're not at fault in any particular way. And yet, if we scrutinize our lives, we have all rebelled against God. We've all taken advantage of someone around us that's more vulnerable. We've all disobeyed God in some way. And that deserves punishment, punishment from God. But now that Jesus has gone to the cross, anyone who trusts in Him and His death and His resurrection, anyone who follows Him as Lord and Savior has been acquitted because the vengeance of God that we deserve as sinners, He took on the cross for us. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is the gospel. And because Jesus can pray, verse 22, the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge, we can pray, verse 22, those of us who trust in Christ. And you can claim verse 22 to be true for you as well, but only if you recognize your sin against God. Oh, friend, forsake your sin. Turn away from it and trust in Christ. Only then can the Lord be your stronghold and your rock and your refuge. Only then. But it can happen today. It can happen right now. I urge you, run to Christ. Flee to Christ who is the stronghold. Believe in Christ, the righteous Son of God, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin if you would only trust in Him. Sadly, not everyone has trusted in Christ. Not everyone who's been offered what Christ offers. Everyone's sins haven't been paid for by His shed blood. And we know from the Scriptures that not all will be saved. Many will continue to oppose God in their lives no matter how many opportunities they have to trust Him. They will die in essence with their fist raised in defiance of the Lord saying, I don't need what Jesus has done for me or I dislike and hate Jesus or I respect Jesus but I don't believe He is the Son of God. Any one of those things is defiance. And so what Jesus would pray in verse 23 is true as well. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. In fact, on that day, Jesus will be the judge. Jesus will be the one meeting out vengeance. All sin must be avenged by a holy and just God. 
For those who've trusted in Christ, our sin was avenged in Christ's death. But for those who refuse his offer of forgiveness, they will receive the Lord's payback with certainty on that dreadful day. Oh, will you let it come to that, friend? Will you wait and not trust in Christ now and find yourself not ready on that day? The psalmist who wrote Psalm 94 was an Israelite. He believed God's promises and he trusted in Israel's faithful and loving God. And during his day, God had promised to take vengeance for the wicked who opposed him, either from outside Israel or inside Israel, whether they were a wicked king who battled against God's people or whether they were wicked Israelites who were oppressing their neighbor, Israelite. The psalmist could cry out for vengeance based on God's promises to them there under the old covenant. But in God's perfect plan, he is continuing to fill those promises through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. We live in a time between the cross and the day of judgment. A new day has dawned, a day of mercy a day of amnesty for any who would turn to Christ. We live under the new covenant guaranteed by Christ's blood. We follow a suffering Savior and King, not a king like King David and King Solomon who would win battles on the battlefield. No, the battle that Jesus won was a battle on the cross, a battle to pay for our sins. And He won the battle with certainty when God raised him from the dead. And we, we now are called to love our enemies. Jesus told us to do that, to pray for them, to turn to him for forgiveness. We offer the way of salvation to anyone who would come to him. But we can also look forward to that day, that day that God chooses when everyone will be called to account. And so we can pray with the Apostle John at the end of his revelation, come Lord Jesus, come. We want both. We want forgiveness for those who oppose us and persecute us. And we want Jesus to come back and so we can't pray for vengeance in exactly the same way that the psalmist did here in Psalm 94 because of the cross. We pray for the salvation of our enemies, and we also pray for the day to come when Christ will bring final justice. Let me give you an example of how this tension might work out in real life. If you've been wronged by an adversary, You've been treated poorly by an enemy. You can pray, I believe. Lord, give me victory over my adversary. Give them what they deserve, Lord, in an earthly sense. Expose them and protect me. Let the judge, for example, in a court of law, rule in my favor. And Lord, grant them salvation in Christ even as you humble them. Grant them salvation. That's different than praying, Lord, damn my adversary to hell. The former is what we pray now because of the cross. 
And as we wait for that final day, we pray for earthly justice and for our enemies to be humbled, even as we pray for them to be saved. But God's heavenly justice is coming. The Lord's ultimate payback is certain. And on that day, we will rejoice in the good and perfect judgments of God. Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2 record this. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. And He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. You see, the great prostitute in these verses is symbolic of all the wicked who refused to bow the knee to Jesus. Do you hate sin in yourself and others? The wicked will be charged. Are you trusting in the Lord's Son, Jesus Christ? All who trust in Him are blessed with protection now and consolations in the midst of our cares and our troubles. And eventually, with a resurrection to new and everlasting life beyond the grave. Are you waiting with patience and hope for the day of the Lord's payback? Oh, brothers and sisters, His justice may be slow, but it is certain. Trust God who protects His people and will pay back the wicked. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the truth of Scripture. We praise you that all of Scripture has been breathed out by you through the pen of many men throughout thousands of years, literally. But every single word of it is true. And we praise you that you are a God who knows everything, who sees everything. You know all the injustices that are taking place in the world and you will call them to account one day. We praise you for that. You're a God of justice. But Lord, perhaps most of all, we praise you that even though we ourselves have committed injustices against our neighbor and against you especially, that you've made a way for your vengeance, for our sin to be poured out on Jesus Christ, our Savior. We praise you for our King Jesus. Help us follow Him. Help us trust in Him no matter what's happening, no matter what troubles we face. In Christ's name, amen.